If you have your Bibles, open up to Psalm 13, and will you stand for the reading of God's Word? And this will certainly feel like a bit of a shift uh, from where we've been, but it's the Word of God. Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Thank you. I will give you a a little indicator into my age, but this summer is my 20-year high school reunion, and I just bought my ticket this morning, uh, and Jenny was very clear, you'll be buying one ticket to your 20-year high school reunion. (laughs) She has no interest in going. That's fine. So sad. Um, she went to 10, and that was enough for her, so uh, yeah. But uh, the Facebook group has been really interesting. Maybe you're having this experience, uh, connecting with people you haven't connected with for many years, and, and as the, the, the chatter has gotten going, there's been a, just a couple of special moments, special relationships that have re-emerged, and you, know, you can't get very far on my Facebook page and not see what I do for a living and, and who I work for and things like that, and there's this one classmate of mine who was in youth group with us that we've just fallen apart and through some dialogue back and forth, uh, she actually lives quite close, so we've spent some time with her. She shared with me uh, the story behind the experience that I knew had happened, but I didn't know what had happened. Uh, she had gone off to university in her junior year. There was just one evening, and I asked her if I could share this, by the way. There was just one evening, uh, a fleeting moment, some poor decisions, and as a result of that evening, uh, she found herself pregnant. Um, So she was part of a church at that time, and she reflects that the church was just simply amazing to her uh, when she found herself pregnant. They gave her a baby shower. They came alongside of her to make sure that she would uh, be able to raise this child and keep them. The first couple of years in pregnancy and after, there was child care to help her finish off her degree. It was amazing. But then she said something something odd. Um, there There was a shift right around when her son was four years old. That the very church that was just so loving and accepting and helping, as her child was now placed in the context of other children and families, she said it turned to be a very isolating experience at church. I would pick up my son from Sunday school and be very aware that groups of families and parents were going out to lunch Or there would be weekends we would show up and everybody had gone camping. And I was just made very, very aware of my singleness and my single motherness. I would try to bring these things up to friends and to people in the church. I would be vulnerable and share how I was feeling. And so often, my vulnerability was responded to with silence. That the very place that was so accepting for me became one of the more judgmental places in my life. And she has really struggled to find comfort and peace and acceptance in a local church, and it just breaks my heart. 
But I think if we're honest, we can see how that would be true. That so often our experiences of church are things like we put on our, our best clothes, we see each other just for moments on a weekend, and oftentimes those moments are as quick as the greeting time we have in a service where you just say, hi, hope you're well, how's life? We don't know how to do hard sometimes. We don't give space for doing difficult, and if we're honest, oftentimes church becomes a place where when we are honest and we do find out the difficult things that are happening in life, how often are those times we hear second, third, fourth hand from someone else? We just haven't created the environment at times where people can be safe and vulnerable. I don't think my friend's experience is isolated to her. I don't think it's isolated to single parents, although I think it's especially true for some. We are in a series talking about the church becoming flesh. And we've been inspired. I mean, to be flesh and to have purpose and mission in this world, to, to tell people about Jesus. Last week, Greg specifically sharing that part of being this church, part of being Lake Avenue, is being a place that cares deeply for kids and lets them shape our faith. And we can't have a series about the church being flesh without talking just for a morning, at least, that our flesh and our human life is a fallen life. It's a difficult life. It's a messed up life and it's messy. For Lake Avenue Church to be the church that puts on flesh, we embrace our fleshness. The Psalms can help us with that. And we just read Psalm 13. I'm going to help us with some context in there. But the truth is, I hope what you will see this morning is that part of the spiritual life, part of being a devoted follower of Jesus, part of that life means that life is hard and that we have a responsibility and a call on our lives to live out the hardness of life together so that we don't feel like we need to put on our best self, that we don't have to be scared when people are vulnerable with us about the difficulty of their life, that we together become the church in the ways that we walk together and especially in hard and dark moments. So we'll be in the Psalms, but just some context uh, about the Psalms. First, the Psalms are part of a, a section of scripture called the wisdom literature. There's five books that compose this biblical genre. It's really important. I think sometimes um, we don't talk a lot. This is, a, this is the living, active, incredible, dynamic word of God. But it is a, it's a beautifully wonderful book that isn't just like any other book you read. Within the Bible, there are different sections of literature. There are different genres of literature that are meant to communicate different aspects about who God is and how he wants us to live in his world. And the wisdom literature in particular is a very unique book to the rest of the Bible. Just as an example, I want to show you and juxtapose two different types of literature we see in the Bible, looking at two different groups of five books of the Bible. The very first five books of the Bible, we call them the Pentateuch. Those books are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in the Pentateuch, the point of view of the writing comes from God. God is the one speaking. God is the one creating. God is the one choosing. God is the one delivering. God is the one setting up the world the way he wants. God is the one instructing his people and saying, this is who I am, and this is how I want you to live in my world. 
That's a way to understand the, the point of view of the first five books of the Bible. So then when we come to this other group of five books, the wisdom literature, we have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. There's, there's a different point of view happening here. These are creative writings. These are pieces of art. This is poetry. These are songs. And the point of view are human beings now expressing back to God what their experience is of living in his created world. You see the difference? First five books, God is speaking, he's creating, he's saying, here's how I want you to live in my world. These five books of the Bible are human beings expressing back to God what it's like to live in his world. So when we come to the Psalms, we have to understand the context of, of them, that it's, it's faithful humans who are creatively writing and expressing themselves back to God about how they are doing and living out the way he's asked them to live. And so within the Psalms, you can categorize the Psalms a whole lot of ways, but for this morning, there are three basic categories of Psalms. There are Psalms that are hymns, there are Psalms that are Psalms of thanksgiving, and then there's these Psalms of lament, which essentially means complaint. Right, so the psalms that we so often sing songs about, the psalms that we often use in our prayer, the psalms that we give to one another for encouragement, are so often they are psalms of thanksgiving or they are hymns. They are the psalms that speak about that life is working and that God is amazing and that God is present and that we are experiencing blessing and we are overwhelmed by his goodness. These are the kind of psalms that we so often know about. And the truth of the matter is, 40%, 40% of the psalms are lament psalms. It means 40% of, of this ancient worship manual, 40% of the time that the community of God got together, they were complaining, they were lamenting, they were expressing quite the opposite to God. They were saying, where are you? This isn't working out so well. I feel like you left me. Why does everybody else get all your blessing and I'm sitting here trying? Last night at the worship service before the offering, Jeremy sang a song that he wrote, which was a song of lament. And I don't know if you felt it. It felt a little awkward because we're not used to expressing these things to God so bluntly. And yet 40% of the time in the Psalms, we see the psalmist with the utter freedom and vulnerability to go right to God directly and say, this is hard. So when we come to Psalm 13 and we read a psalm and how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. So how do we study art? How do we take poetry and, and see it as God's word and apply it to our lives? There's a couple ways people have tried to do this. We're just so literal sometimes. We read a psalm, and then we look backwards in the Bible, and we try to guess, like, so if this is going on now, where in history did that happen? So it must be speaking to that. And, and there's a lot of people who spend a lot of time doing that. I think, 
for this morning, what we want to do is a different way of looking at the Psalms. And that when we come to poetry and we come to art, we look at the way the artist put the art together. We look at the very structure of how this poem is, and in the very structure, maybe we can find something for ourselves. So, there are four movements in this piece of poetry I want to highlight, and the first one is this. The psalmist begins by invoking the name of the Lord. We, we get three words into this psalm, and he says, how long, Lord? Now, this might seem really simple, that by the third word, he's addressing God. But the truth is, it's significant to us, because when we're honest, our first movement in a time of crisis, in a time of being overwhelmed, in a time of deep need, far too often we do not go to the Lord first. Far too often we go grab a hamburger or a donut. Far too often we come home from work and say, I really need a drink because it's been a hard day. Or I need to turn on the television tonight and just kind of clear my mind because it's just been so difficult. We are human beings. We are flesh. We are messed up. We have found ways to deal with our overwhelmness without going to God. And what we see in Psalm 13 is someone who is at the end of their rope who is at a time of deep need, and the very first thing the psalmist does is say, how long, Lord? First thing the psalmist does is invoke the name of the Lord. The second movement in the poem is the complaint. Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Notice how bluntly the psalmist speaks to the Lord. He calls on the name of the Lord, and he lays out his complaints. When I was new in the faith in, in high school, I remember there was a, a time where my small group leader was helping us understand how to do prayer. And, and, and this helpful acronym that many of us still use, and it's great, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's this acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S. So when you sit down to pray or journal, you start with A, adoration, telling God how amazing he is. Then you move to C, confession, confessing to the Lord how terrible you have been and your sins. And then you move to T, thanksgiving, so that we can be thankful for God's grace and tell God how amazing he is again. And then once you've done all those things, you get to S, which stands for supplication, and I think when we learn to pray that way, which, by the way, there, I don't see any instruction in the Bible that says, Acts, do that. But when we learn to pray that way, and if that's the dominant way we understand the way we talk with the living God, it is so easy to think that we have to butter up God before we get to really what's going on. Once we adore God and confess and thank, then, then, then we can go to God. And here's the truth. Just because there are dysfunctional human relationships where that is true doesn't mean that the functional, living, and beautiful, and all-approaching God works that way. But you and I live in such a messed up world where there are literal relationships we have in our families, at our workplace, in our, in our, in our home, where before we would be vulnerable to share what's really going on, we have to so safely frame that in the context of, of, of happiness. 
And we bring that dysfunctional idea of real, honest relationship and communication to a God who we see in Psalm 13 is able to have us come to him bluntly and clearly. So we have the psalmist reaching out, saying, how long, Lord, invoking his name, and then giving the complaints to God, and then he moves to the next moment in the psalm, the petition. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Essentially, the psalmist is saying this. Fix this, Lord. When he says, uh, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death, Lord, I need you to come and change this situation. I would rather die than live the way I'm living. Have you ever felt that way? Psalmist goes to God. How long, Lord? All this is messed up. You've forgotten me. You've left me. I need you now, Lord, to come and to rescue and to change the situation. It's important real quick to understand the context here because I think so often our own individualized understanding of pain and suffering and things like that, here's what's happening. When, when the complaints come, we're going to go back for a moment. When the complaints in the Bible and the Psalms of Lament happen, they are not light and easy complaints. A few weeks ago, Dwayne Funderburk and Sega Worku and I were on a plane ride home and we were delayed for, I mean, like six hours. I don't get to, with my plane delays... Go, where are you, God? Have you forgotten me forever? Or when you go to Trader Joe's and they've run out of your favorite thing, you don't get to go, you're never here because there's no horseradish, you know, like that. (laughs) When you read the Psalms of Lament, these are serious things. This isn't self-help. This isn't light. The Psalms of Lament and the kind of complaints that are in the Bible have to do with human safety, have to do with human dignity, have to do with things like enemies and evil. And the truth is there's plenty of that in our lives. There's plenty of that in this world. So when we move to petition God, we are not simply asking him to provide things in the grocery store for us. We are not simply asking God to make our lives of luxury a little more luxurious. We're asking the living God to come into broken situations that are deeply troubling, where people's safety and human dignity are on the line, and we cry out to God to change it. But if we're truthful and we're honest, and if there was an audit on your pastor's prayer life, honestly, there's probably more times in a week where I am asking God to give me something rather than fix something. We even get some pushback, you know, because there are times where we look at what's happening in the world where there's just terrible things happening. Like human lives are being lost and earthquakes happen and then we come up as a community, as a church, and we lament those things together and sometimes those are uncomfortable prayers for us. Because what do you mean? That has nothing to do with me, right? That didn't happen to me. But in the Psalms, even, we see individual laments and communal laments, and they're over serious things like human dignity and human safety, things like evil and enemies. So when we get to this part of the, uh, the Psalm where he says, look on me and answer, he is coming from a place of despair over serious stuff and saying, God, fix this. It's powerful. And it has personally convicted me this week. 
thinking about the way I petition the Lord and what I petition the Lord for. And then it ends. The psalm ends what kind of feels like a schizophrenic shift or the personality of the writer has just totally changed because this is how I think we, we read. We read the Bible sometimes without emotion. So we can come from this petition where he is literally begging God to save his life. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I've overcome him. My foes will rejoice when I fall. I think this is how we read this sometimes in our minds. But I trust in your unfailing love, God. My heart rejoices in your salvation as if he has just gone from despair to joy in a a fleeting second. I do not see that in the lament psalms. In the lament psalms, we have deep despair. We're petitioning God to change things. And I think what we see in this last part we call the concluding affirmation, I think what we see emerge in the poem is real faith and a disciplined mind. Because the psalmist is essentially telling God this, like, God, right now life is so overwhelming that when I look out into the future, it makes no sense. I do not see you. I do not feel you. I do not understand how this is all going to work out. When I look forward, I see nothing. And here's the way the enemy works. When we get to those moments in our lives, I think the enemy just wants to keep our face looking forward. But see what happens in the first five books of the Bible. When God is setting up his world, there's this thing that he instructs his people to do over and over and over again. He tells them to remember. So when you read the first five books of the Bible and you see these festivals and feasts and things that we're supposed to do every year, three years, five years, all of that is because God knows that the human mind is one that when we're in the moment, we are only looking forward, but a disciplined mind and true faith is one that is able that in those moments where none of this makes sense, that we look backwards and we can say with all integrity and all honesty, whether we feel it or not, we can say, I will sing your praise because you have been good to me. You have been good to me. So when this makes no sense, I can look backwards and say, yes, you are real, God. I know you are here even when I'm not feeling it right now. This is one of my, the hardest times, uh, one of the most important messages for me when I was the high school pastor here. Because when kids graduate high school, essentially what we're sending them into, Christian school, anything, church, we're sending them to a future that's very fuzzy and new. And the way the enemy works, I'm convinced of it, is when they hit a new environment, our young people, that somehow this is so unclear, so being formed, that we never have taught them to look backwards. How many people have stopped coming to church because crisis hit and the crisis took them over instead of having a disciplined mind and real faith that says this right now, I know a God that has shown up time and time again in human history. I know a God who has shown up in my life. I know a God that if he hasn't shown up in my life, he's shown up in the people I worship with's lives. So I know that he is real. So I can be in this moment. I can say with all faith that I trust you, God. So we have in Psalm 13 this overall structure that I think is incredibly helpful for the way we pray. Where we invoke the name of the Lord. We don't need to butter up God. We go right to him and complain. This is what is not making sense right now, Lord. We petition him to come into those moments and ask him to change them. And we have the discipline of mind and we have true faith that says, I trust you, God, and I will sing your praise even when this makes no sense because I have experienced you and I know of your goodness. 
So as helpful as the acts prayer is, Psalm 13 gives us just another model of praying because frankly, there are times in life where you can't start out with adoration. There are seasons of life when you get the diagnosis from the doctor with a terminal illness. You don't need to start with, you're amazing, God. You can start with, why, God? Read the Psalms 40% of the time. There's freedom to approach the living God with bluntness and honesty and real faith. When your marriage is falling apart, you don't need to butter up God to tell him where you need him and how you're feeling. I think that structure you will see through most of the lament psalms. And sometimes they're longer, so they go in and out of petitions and complaints, and there's always a concluding affirmation. It will be helpful to you as you pray and as you face real seasons of difficulty. So we have the overall structure of Psalm 13, which I think I'm, I'm praying and hoping is helpful to you as you walk with Jesus. But then what is the actual message of this particular psalm? What would that mean for us this morning? And so just two points. The first one is this, is that mourning and pain and enemies and the loneliness and depression, deep needs, evil, and the list could go on and on and on are very real things in real parts of life. So when we come to church, we ought not have to pretend. When we come to church, let us be the kind of church that when we see someone going through a difficult time, that we don't have to feel awkward about that, but that we can embrace the difficulty because we recognize that maybe I'm not in a difficult time right now, but mine's coming soon. Or maybe our, our ability to be blessed right now is the very thing that God is providing for those going through difficulty but how could you ever be that blessing to someone if you don't have a relationship to know what's really going on? Mourning and pain and loneliness, this, this stuff, this is part of life. It was never promised anywhere else. Look at the New Testament. Look at the people who were doing amazing things for God. It always came with persecution. We don't graduate to a status of joy 100% of the time. But here's the other truth of Psalm 13 that is just the best. The Lord is faithful and can be trusted in all times, especially in our times of lament. So as true as it is that life is difficult, it is more than true that God is faithful and that God is good and that God delivers from these moments of difficulty. That we aren't defined by the hard things, but we're defined by the goodness and favor and love of God through Christ. This feels like a seemingly contradictory thing. In fact, one commentator this week as I was studying said it this way, Psalm 13 shows this tension between agony and adoration. Which means that when we gather as a true community, as a church here at Lake Avenue, there are, we are adoring the name and the power and the person of God in Christ. 
And we are very honest that part of living in his world is very difficult at times, and those things are intention. But it's not really attention, it's just the way it is. So what that means for us is that we as the church, we do messy. We do difficult. We do relationship with people whose lives don't look great all the time or, or fleeting moments. Don't, we don't let those define them. We, we, we come in those moments in powerful ways as the church. So we live our lives together. We recognize that life isn't always wonderful and that it's hard. We come together in the midst of the hard and we cry out to the Lord. We trust him even when we can't see what's ahead. We remind one another of his goodness and we remain faithful to him as we mourn. And guess what? There's a whole other 60% of the Psalms. It's not the majority of the Psalms, times of lament, and it's not the majority of the human experience. There are 60% of the Psalms who are crying out quite the opposite of what we read in Psalm 13. In fact, 17 Psalms later, listen to this in Psalm 30. The psalmist says, you turned my mourning into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and you clothed me with joy. That my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. Friends, we have a God that meets us in our times of lament and he turns them into something else. Which means we can honestly and bluntly go to God in a time of depression and he turns our lives. Sometimes it's 17 Psalms later, sometimes it's five years later, sometimes it's a week later. He will turn that lament into joy. He will take our hopelessness and he will turn it into hope. He will take our despair and turn it into joy. We have a God who is to be trusted and who is faithful, who we don't have to hide from in times of difficulty, who says, come to me, lay it out on me, and I will be faithful to you, and I can be trusted. Amen? Friends, grief and mourning and depression, the overwhelming needs of life, our safety, evil, and enemies, they do not win. They do not have the final word. We will sing the praises because God has been good to us and he will be good to us. So just to help you see how this is played out, how, do we, how, do you, how does this show up in the life of a church? And I'll tell you, I'm so thankful to be a part of a church where this is who we are. Let me just connect some dots that you may see. Every week, every week at the end of our services, we say the same two things. If you need prayer, there's a group of people who want to connect with you and pray with you. That is us saying this. We recognize that life is difficult. We recognize that life is really hard. And you are not to live in that difficulty and hardness alone. We want to be here with you, to pray with you, and to care for you. That's why we have prayer at the end of the services. And then we say this, hey, come over here and connect because there's this deep recognition that the, the way when you read the scriptures, the way that God has set up a relationship with him is not only individually me and Jesus, it's communal. 
that we come together in relationship and as we come together and live our lives together, that's where we are the kind of people that there will be times in my life where this is so fuzzy, I can't see what's ahead. I need my community around me to say, Jeff, you're just looking here. You need to look backwards. We remember when God showed up this way in your life. We remember when this happened in your life. God has been good to you. We need one another to follow Jesus. And that's why we say every week, if you're living life alone in this church, you're not living life with God. So go connect, help us. Help, let us help you find friendship and community. So it doesn't just shape what we do at the end of our services, it shapes everything that we do. I'm just going to use children's and student ministries because it's, uh, it's where I grew up in this church. You know, do you, do you recognize how hard it is to be a kid these days? We took a vow last week. We had our child dedications. And what so many of you said, if you were here, is you made a commitment saying, um, we are going to work to make society a better place for them to live. So just by reasoning, we are admitting in that vow that society is a hard place for them to live. And in our ministries at this church, here's what, here's what I just, I love about what God has given us. Let me tell you the diversity of need within our children and students at this church. One, we have kids in this church who, who the pressure on their lives to be exceptional at everything is overwhelming. They are supposed to be the smartest kid. They are supposed to be the best athlete. They are supposed to be the best this and that. We have kids who are in sixth grade already stressed out about college, which is crazy and wrong. And we have kids over here in the same room, in the same small groups, in the same relationships, who the pressure of their life is I have no idea if we're going to have to move next week because my dad lost his job. Or we're moving in with my aunt because our landlord raised the rent and we just can't do it. We have kids in our church who have a tenuous relationship with their father because dad is traveling all the time and spending so much time providing materially for the family and being successful and living out that blessing that God has given that they have very little relationship with their dad. And we have kids over here who don't even know their father or who live in the fear that they will come home from school and their dad will be gone because he was deported. One room... One community. It's a beautiful thing. The needs of our kids are so serious and real. And what we do, why we have a children's ministry, why we have a student ministry, why we do vacation Bible school, why we go to Forest Home, why we have these summer family nights is because we want to come alongside kids who are anywhere in this spectrum of need and pressure and to say this, we recognize life is hard for you. We recognize that it's hard to be a kid in this world. We affirm that reality, but let us tell you about someone named Jesus. You are not alone. So I'm this random adult in the church who I give up my time to be in relationship with kids or teach Sunday school or be a small group leader because I am going to be the person who points kids in the midst of their overwhelmness to a living and breathing and loving God who says to them, you are not going to be defined by the stress of your life. You can be defined by my goodness and love and I'm trustworthy. Friends, that's why we have VBS. We don't have VBS because churches are supposed to have VBS. We have BBS because we recognize that kids all over the place need a break and need to know that they are cared for and loved and this random group of adults who smiles at them and shares life with them and sings songs with them and dresses up with them 
That those very acts for us are acts of being Jesus to them and pointing them to the reality that the overwhelmness of life doesn't define them. That's why we do what we do. And this happens all over the place, all the time at our church. And here's, what, here's what's crazy. When we are faithful to being the kind of church that recognizes that there are needs in this world, there are needs for people in this church and for our community, when we acknowledge that and plan to help meet those needs, God does amazing things. I want to encourage you. We have a video, it's a short video, of someone who had very real needs and found their way to Lake Avenue. See how God moves when we recognize that there are needs in this world.